for us. Today, uh, we're going to talk about what's almost universally acknowledged as a mental health breakdown worldwide. And there are a number of crises going on in our world right now. Um, I just gave a webinar on the Addiction Theory Network, which is available at LPP. And the person before me is the famous Bruce Alexander of Rat Park fame. And he was as discouraged, he says, as he's ever been in his life. He's 80 something about the crises we're facing and our inability to come to grips with them. You said almost like apocalyptic sounding. Very much. And then he was his normal come see, come saw Bruce. You know, he's a very low key, he's Canadian now, but he actually grew up in Morristown, New Jersey. Um, I'm a little more of a hair on fire kind of a person as, but we're, Zach and I are not only gonna talk about the crisis, but we're gonna talk about what is available to us in the form of what we call the life process program best practices guide for mental health to combat it <clears throat> so let me just start with a quote we stand on the threshold of advances in the biological science is so relevant to psychopathology that one can look forward in the decades ahead to an ultimate resolution of the major psychotic disorders that have plagued mankind for centuries wow now that wasn't just some guy off the street, that was Norman Garmese, uh, a very famous 20th century psychologist. And uh, it was a part of the American Psychological Association Master Lecture Series in 1975. <clears throat> so that was so optimistic, wasn't it? <laughs> On the verge, no that more mental illness. That's like uh, the equal and opposite reaction to love and addiction, it sounds. Thanks for, and we published Love and Addiction in 1975. And so I was very tuned in to, th this was the direction that psychology was going in. And ironically, it was following psychiatry. And in many ways that's continued. So for the last half a century, at least American psychiatry and its fellow travelers have been cheerleading uh, a descent into madness. <clears throat> I get a newsletter from the World Health Organization mental health newsletter. And the one for June 2022 isn't sound very good. Um, it's not a happy newsletter. Um, as we enter the third year of the pandemic and live with its far reaching effects, we must accelerate our efforts to address the significant impact that COVID-19 has had on people's mental health. A WHO scientific brief indicated that rates of already common conditions like depression and anxiety went up by more than 25% in the first year of the pandemic, adding to the nearly 1 billion people who were already living with a mental disorder. 1 billion people. <clears throat> uh, the U.S. is at the bottom of the heap um, um, among 196 nations that the World Health Organization um, measured in its Global Burden of Disease Study. Um, 
the United States loses the second most life years due to disability and death from drugs. Um, by, by the way, that, that uh, announcement was from Devorah Kessel, the director of the Department of Mental Health and Substance Use at the World Health Organization. So she, her business is to look at both mental health and uh, drug issues. <clears throat> Uh, the measures of are the disability adjusted life years per 100,000 population. Um, the United States lost 1,700 dailies per 100K from all forms of drug use. The second highest rate of drug use disease burden in the world. The US disease rate compares with 340 dailies per 100,000 in Europe, one fifth of the US rate. How is that possible? Uh, in my ATN lecture, I pause and say, <clears throat> the United States is very similar demographically to Europe. We have five times the rate of death and disability due to drug <clears throat> use. Among all 196 nations, the US ranks second overall in dailies lost to all drug use disorders, first in dailies from cocaine, third in dailies from opioids, and second in dailies from amphetamine use. As for mental health, <clears throat> the very heavy burdens of dis mental dis substance disorders are matched by the US high US rankings on other mental disorders. The US ranks fifth in the world in dailies from anxiety disorder and 11 in the world from depressive disorder. Across all mental disorders, the US ranks fourth, fourth out of 196 countries in the world. So, A, how are we doing so bad with drugs and addiction and mental illness and mental health? Two, how are we continuing on the same pathway? How are we not able to get off of this path? Which people all, all the time ask about um, climate change and a million in guns and every other issue that faces the United States. And third, how is the United States leading the rest of the world over a cliff? <clears throat> <clears throat> Meanwhile, American mental health has been declining since 1990. Um, and uh, we, uh, Zach and I have discussed the former National Institute of Mental Health Director Thomas Insull, who's written a kind of a mea culpa memoir. He's no longer head. But even when he was head, he noticed there was an inconvenient truth. The most discouraging assessment came in 2013 from an in-depth analysis by the U.S. Burden of Disease Collaborators. Hundreds of investigators gathered data on 291 diseases and injuries between 1990 and 2010. Combining premature death and disability to calculate the burden of each disease, they found that the toll of mental disorders had grown in the last two decades, <clears throat> even as other serious conditions became more manageable. That was a quote from Thomas Insull. So just for people who are listening, I've, I've heard that it's- <clears throat> That was actually an article in Scientific American- Oh, okay. That uh, in 2013, I see. Um, and they quoted Thomas Insel. 
thanks for pointing that out, uh, which he called it inconvenient truth. Mm -hmm. Thomas Intel is a great espouser of biological psychiatry. He felt, he, when he was head of the NIMH, he felt, oh, we, we're just too touchy-feely. We've got to get directly into biological psychiatry. Um, he's totally changed his tune now, as, as we've discussed around his memoir. And this drop-off in our mental health occurred during years when, quote, life-changing medications were regularly brought to market. So we're sitting here, Insil saying we're just about to solve mental illness. And, you know, kind of many experts kind of still endorse that line. Maya Salovitz is one. And new drugs are constantly being introduced. And yet the hidden secret, the inconvenient truth, is that our mental health and, of course, addiction has plummeted. So it's like whatever the cause of mental illness, it's obviously expanding dramatically, exponentially. But... Uh, we're waiting at the other end with medications for people who are facing that mental illness. And we can never be discouraged. I mean, <clears throat> insult, I, I, I use this analogy. Robert McNamara was the head of the Defense Department during the Vietnam War. Every, everybody knows he was a genius. And um, after he left his job, he was interviewed in, in, in something called the Fogs of War, he said, of course, he knew that all the things that he was saying were bullshit. He knew that they were tailoring the information. For, he knew that the minute we left, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong would take over Vietnam. He knew that. But he would never, he felt it wasn't his job to tell the public. And he certainly wasn't going to tell Lyndon Johnson that. And so, you know, they tailored all the information. I, I don't know. They made it up whole cloth. And then the minute he steps out of his office, he says, you know, everything I said was bullshit. So what if 50,000 American men were crippled and died? You know, at least we, kept, we had a good line. And Thomas Zinson reminds me of that. That was mm -hmm. his line throughout his heading, the directorship of the NIMH. And now after he's outside of that bailiwick, he says, you know, we went completely in the wrong direction. Um, so, these are not good statistics. And the funny thing is everybody's aware of them. I mean, when Thomas Insel figures it out, then you know how, I don't want to be insulting, even the thickest walls has figured out that we're going in a bad direction. And if that's true, it's going to pervade American society, and it does. The New York Times, just in recent weeks, has published a series of articles um, if you weren't depressed before, so um, there's a mental health crisis in America for young people. It's life or death, the mental health crisis among U.S. teens, depression, self-harm, and suicide arising among, U arising among U.S. Uh, adolescents. Wow. <clears throat> American adolescence is undergoing a drastic change. Three decades ago, the gravest public health threats to teenagers in the U.S. came from binge drinking, drunk driving, teen pregnancy, and smoking. These have since fallen sharply. Well, that's good news. Replaced by a new public health concern, 
soaring rates of mental health disorders. Huh. In 2019, 13% of adolescents reported having a major depressive episode. More than one in 10. That's a 60% increase from 2007. Emergency room visits by children and adolescents in that period rose sharply for anxiety, mood disorders, and self-harm. And for people ages 10 to 24, suicide rates, stable from 2000 to 2007, leaps nearly 60% by 2018. Whew. Um, so in case you haven't gotten the idea of what's going on. Here is the Surgeon General, uh, Vivek Murthy. I guess I just have to make a note. Talking about people who get out of the fogs of war. When he was uh, Surgeon General under Obama, he issued a addiction is a mental illness is a brain disorder report. He left that job under Obama. He's, and now he's back in under Biden. And he wrote a book called something like Community is the only cure for our emotional and mental health and addiction problems. But now he's back in the chair. And so now he'll endorse the Robert McNamara War mm -hmm. in Vietnam, translated into the war on mental illness and addiction. It's crazy. So in his current position as Surgeon General, uh, this is an article in the time. Surgeon General warns of youth mental health crisis. The coronavirus pandemic intensified a rise in adolescent depression, anxiety, and mental health distress that was underway before the spring of 2020. I wanted to emphasize something, which I hope is clear. This isn't due to the COVID crisis. It was apparent for years and even decades before it, but the COVID crisis has accentuated all of these problems for reasons we can possibly imagine. So one last quote, I mean, we're talking about a worldwide epidemic, a worldwide crisis. We're talking about an American inspired crisis because we spread our disease world, our disease concepts worldwide and how we've been deteriorating mental health wise and drug deaths wise for decades. And then I've applied, obviously it's affecting young people, which is of course, especially bad news. Um, who wants to hear the young people are suffering the worst reversals. Mm. And then one last implication, if it's affecting young people, <clears throat> Apropos mental health within the school system, where these plummeting mental health indicators are especially noticeable and equally discouraging. This is another Times uh, headline. 362 school counselors on the pandemic's effects on children. Quote, anxiety is filling our kids. Woo! <clears throat> well, folks and kitties, we've got good news here. Um, uh, as everyone knows, my colleague is Zach Rhodes. And Zach Rhodes fills a number of jobs. It's possible to describe them all, but he works, he works both with adults as a part of the Life Process Program as a coach. 
but he works with children in the school system. Zach, did you want to put any more meat on that bone or say anything else in response to what I've been describing? And then, and then let me just begin to get tap into your expertise. Do you perceive the kind of anxiety first <clears throat> among uh, children and then second among the 362 school counselors that they interviewed? How do you see the environment in the school system? Well, it's first of all, the school counselors, I think are starting to reach the understanding if they hadn't already that Thomas Insel did. Because uh, per that, was it a Times article that you shared? I think um, that where they interviewed all those school counselors or surveyed them, they, um, the school counselors I work with are starting to say there's so many referrals to them and, you know, referrals that are coming from all over the place for all different reasons, for anxiety, for depression, for people acting out on something they may not have otherwise. And they're starting to say, like, you know, I, I get that some things are in the realm of counseling. There's a reason I do what I do. So I have a role to play. But if virtually everybody needs a referral to a counselor, isn't that a role that's bigger than a counseling role? In other words, if an entire community is enough in distress individually and maybe, you know, ripping apart at the seams, is it really just for one or two or three school counselors to try to help everybody in this mental health sort of uh, lens? Or, or is it really that we need to do something as a, a full unit? <clears throat> And that, that's a little bit, that sounds a little bit like the gun debate when they say, well, school teachers are, should, uh, should carry guns. It's like, wait a second, you know, I have a job, but we're being inundated by these things. <clears throat> How am I supposed to <clears throat> cure and solve everything? How, how do you, are, are you able to say where you fit into this you know, sea of anxiety and uh, an awareness that things aren't working out on a, oh, here's a kid with a problem, let's counsel him basis. It's so funny you, you mentioned that's on uh, today. Yesterday, I just got out of a, a sort of an informal meeting. I have two colleagues that I work with who do, we all do similar stuff. My, my role is behavior specialist and work across schools. But we were, we're all sick of, we're sort of on the same wavelength. We're all sick of the idea of responding to things, you know, oh, some behavior comes up that someone doesn't like. So let's respond to that. We think, we think that that is, um, what's the word uh, for, there's no end to that. Self-perpetuating. It's, it's like tacitly already you come in, it's a problem. So you're just focusing in on a problem. So what we're interested in is we see a lot of different people all the time who don't have individualized education plans, who don't have diagnoses. There are just lots of kids with lots of different problems and we see a sea of them all the time. And we were putting together this group to, to try to bring to the, um, uh, the, the actual educational planning for next year so that we could get ahead of things and create a, a culture so that the people who might be in this zone of distress 
and need to seek us out on a reactive basis actually get some sort of cohesion in the community so we've we've been planning on that i forget what you asked me now but well so you're uh, talking about a culture-wide response hey it's, mm. it's called the three c's it's a culture-wide response it involves the whole community <clears throat> you know, obviously if everybody's experienced something it, it's not a, oh he's got a problem she's got a problem let's fix it mm. it's collaborative between all members of the community so you're expanding from a, a piecemeal approach a patient-centered approach to a community and cultural approach yeah that's right and if it if the school is a good microcosm and i think it is for the wider world i mean the school is part of the wider world um it's difficult even so we have um several educators i would say virtually everybody agrees that we need a better sense of community what that means varies what that means to them to each person varies but in schools there's a lot of overhead that you have to answer to a lot of you know imposed restrictions rules there's common core in terms of the general education that you have standards that you have to meet there are things you have to do there's liability so people's comfort level with doing things that are outside of the box right now in order to do what they know is best for community involvement is difficult it reminds me of like there's there are medications for depression and that's just what we should do so you know forget everything else it's just why are we wasting our time at the same way we all kind of know that well kindergarten is one of the cohorts of the school that i work in on, on the lowest end the youngest kids are in kindergarten five and six and they get out of preschool and they've never had any problems in preschool you know they're playing all day they're exploring they're doing stuff in the world with each other and they're learning they're coming home and telling parents that you know i there are some parents at uh the preschool where my daughter goes who said that i overheard them saying their kid comes home and uh they, they used to be when they said we have two at home days i.e the weekend the, the kid would be excited and now ever since attending this preschool they're upset that they have two days at home they want to go back to school and learn no one says that in kindergarten first second third all the way up the ranks because as soon as they get into kindergarten that that sense of play explore is you know really narrow in these little boxes of education and standards that they need to meet anyway all of that to say there's an obvious thing that we all kind of know we should do and that's let people explore and then pull on people's strengths and interests from that exploration into the world get them you know get them trending towards something that will be operational or helpful in the world and let them feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves in this community and a lot of people are not feeling that way a lot of people feel completely estranged from the community even when other community members don't see it that way so i want to point out two things where you're coming from you have a small daughter in preschool mm -hmm. so we're only going to get this version perhaps of zach rhodes at one point where you're a consumer of this whole operation as well as a professional in it the second thing is um it's almost like the mental health and addiction system it's before people get into it they stand the chance 
once they get into it, there's a whole bunch of currents and a tide that you can't avoid. Well put. And the third thing is, um, you know, I'm always, uh, I'm always, I, as you know, Zach, I marvel at your ability to get and hold jobs. Because obviously, uh, the funniest story was when you attended a conference recently on bio neurodiversity. And uh, one of your colleagues had to say, uh, Zach, you know, your, your sound is on. <laughs> yeah. It sort of sounds like a comic routine, you know what I mean? You're going, oh, God, you know, uh, and your friend says, you know, you better shut off your sound. So, you know, uh, You've got a job. They're happy to have your job, and your job is expanding. I mean, you're sort of an interventionist, but everybody says, "Well, it's by the time everybody, so many people are having this problem. By the time the problem manifests, it's a little late in the game." <clears throat> and so somehow we're transitioning, as as you describe it, from a place where kids are happy and like what they do to this. Michigas, this craziness that seem that everybody's impressed with. <clears throat> so we're going to turn our attention to try and um, uh, create the surgeon, um, the director of the WHO Mental Health and Substance Use Division. They're announcing a best practices manual, and um, I, I have nothing against that person. I don't know them. But I do think of the whole Robert McNamara, Thomas Insel thing. Oh, we screwed the whole thing up. You know, here's what you should do or what we should have done. And so we're going to try and step in a step ahead of that and create our own life process program, best practices manual for mental health. And, you know, I think Zach previewed where we're going to go with that. But I just want to begin with one little <clears throat> quote because uh, I found it so inspiring. Um, New York Times, you know, has a bunch of stuff. It's interviewing anxious parents and teachers and students. But for some reason, a bunch of people, for some reason, New York's more crowded and expensive than before. And everybody's sort of scratching their heads and going, well, how's that possible? Um, the pandemic came and everybody said, well, let's get out of New York. Well, not everybody said, let's get out of New York. For some reason, a lot of people said, you know, now's a good time to go to New York. And so uh, some editor or uh, writer for the New York Times interviewed a bunch of these people. This is the kind of nothing, there's nothing I love more than reading things like this. So uh, she interviewed one 21 year old woman who moved here from San Francisco. I live in Brooklyn, New York. And it's like um, an ecstasy. She describes finding happiness. She doesn't really give a lot of details. It's about five, four sentences, but I'll read it. While taking a semester off during the pandemic, I went with my sister to New York for fun. I had always loved baking, but never seriously considered that being my life. But after a couple of weeks in New York, I started working as a pastry cook. And two months after I started there, the restaurant got a Michelin star. 
she seems to be leaving out a few steps, but you know, uh, that it's not her life story. I thought she was just coming for a visit for fun. Now she's been living here for a couple of weeks and then you have to have a house, which is apartment, which is impossible in New York. And now she's working in a Michelin restaurant somehow. So now I'm working at my second Michelin starred restaurant. I'm just still so in love with the city. I'm the happiest I've ever been. You know, you don't read that many things where somebody just says, you know, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life, you know, at 21. And I just wanted to inspire us all with this story. She didn't get any therapy or anything. Some things did happen. So, um, <clears throat> Um, I, I want to break down, you mentioned some things and I wanted to break down what this woman's story and what you were talking about. I mean, the first thing that strikes you is that her behavior was self-motivated. <clears throat> she decided to come to New York and she sort of had a purpose being with her sister and having fun. But that purpose transitioned to, she's a pastry chef now, that's a thing. And she sort of didn't know that she could be a pastry chef or was a pastry chef. So I guess number one in our manual for best practices in mental health is encouraging self-direction and purpose. Zach, does that strike any flint in your thinking about life and children and school? And This is another thing I said yesterday. They, I've always had this sensibility that, um, you know, if kids are having problems and we're going to we're to respond to that, let's let's consider, you know, it's no one wants to be, fall short of the demands that are placed on them in life. Just no one wants that. No one wakes up thinking that that's what they want to do. So if no one really wants that, then and we all kind of know that, then we have to stop treating it that way. We have to stop treating kids as though they're trying to start a fire at school. Then no one wants it. So we want to build up any skills that are lagging. I used to think that it was one and the same. You could start at any, any old starting point. You could either build up skills and then people would find their purpose, or you could start with purpose and it would help build up skills. Um, I now fall entirely in that latter category. To me, I believe it's all about purpose and um, things follow from that. So if there's a place people can go where they feel like not only are they accepted or at least understood and that they can do something that's both interesting to them and maps onto a larger community, everything else that gets in their way can fall into place with, you know, sort of minimal coaching or effort as opposed to, well, we were talking about the pandemic and trends in schools. And you mentioned that you know, the idea that the pandemic caused a mental health crisis. No, it's the trend that was already there. It's just the pandemic was, it's like an exclamation point in an already formed sentence. But now people are funneled into this reactive form of um, trying to overcome mental health. Anyway, purpose is the North Star. Now you mentioned dealing with kindergartners and preschoolers. 
So a lot of them haven't developed a great array of strengths and skills. <clears throat> um, and you're looking at that population and you're thinking about purpose coming in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to, I, I know another job you have is you're a coach in the life process program. Uh, we don't, not only don't we have kindergartners, we don't have teenagers. That's not, we're an online service and we just don't get involved with that. So you're dealing with adults. Now, the woman in that story was 21 years old. So she's an adult, but not by much. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I love, I love how telegraphic her story is. I have always loved baking, but never seriously considered that being my life. So she had strengths and skills. I mean, as kids go along in life, there's some things they're, they like to do and they're good at it. And, you know, that emerges often during the course of their school life, but it isn't always necessarily coordinated with their school life. Is that right? Right. That's almost like it exists in two planes. Like you have these conversations, you know, th oh, it's horrible. This kid loves his art and, you know, he builds all these amazing things, but just can't focus in school. How do we get the guy to focus? In, how do we get him to do school as much as he loves his art? And it's like, does it never occur to you to uh, that one could be one and the same? So, yeah, yeah, that resonates with me deeply. Sometimes I think we're going backwards in all of this because I remember, you know, uh, John Lennon was obviously a genius, but he wasn't a good student. And somewhere along the way, they said, well, he should go to art school. You know what I mean? I mean, why fight? Why fight with somebody? And why not craft and direct them in a way that they're already inclined to go? In a, and it's a strength area. Now, we we don't want to sound like we're totally laissez-faire. I mean, well, you described, there's all kinds of requirements to get out of school and grades in high school, you have to do things. But I know you're about combining those things, how people's, what they're good at and what they need to do is sort of a craft work. Would you say that? How to put them together? Yeah. Yep. The easiest, the easiest way I can think about that is that you know, follow directions, adhere to demands is just a completely empty direction. But um, you know how you're great at this. You know how you'd like to pursue it. You know how your hopes and dreams are this. You can get there, and I'll help you get there. There's some demands you have to meet along the way, um, but we'll get there. Is fulfilling, understandable a concept in a direction you can wrap your arms around. And I want to point out, you know, unless people think, uh, people can say, oh, Stanton, you're so way out in the stratosphere. I don't know. People could think you're like a hippy dippy, Zach. Zach is employed by a school system and by individuals for the purpose of helping young people merge what it is they like to do with sort of what has to happen 
before they give you a diploma and you get to be mm -hmm. you know, an upstanding citizen. So I just want to say our um, best practices manual started with purpose, had strengths and skills. And I think number three is engagement. Um, that, that, that's how you describe the thing that you're most struck with. It, it so happens you have a daughter in preschool is where, how does it happen that they go from enjoying, oh, I have to come home on the weekend to so many people disliking and not wanting to be involved. And you notice there's a mental health component to that. Back to that woman from San Francisco, when you're engaged in things you like to do, you're happy. And when you're not, you're stressed and depressed and anxious. So I call that the third part of the uh, life process best practices manual is engagement. It's having people become engaged in the world and there are portals for them doing that. Do you, is, how do you see that, Zach? How do you see people wanting to be a part of the world and grabbing onto it? How do you picture that with a kid or anybody? You're talking about demands being imposed on people versus people being engaged with the world, including the demands. The demands don't go anywhere. Those are basically stagnant. As long as you have a sense of boundaries in the world, we have laws, we have restrictions, we have things we have to meet, benchmarks we have to hit, and those just don't go anywhere. So it's not, it's not, uh, I know you're being devil's advocate and trying to steal man in an opposing argument, but it's not um, hippy-dippy to say, let's do what you enjoy and deal with these hurdles along the way. I mean, that woman moved from San Francisco to New York, you know, doing a business, there are a lot of demands you have to meet. You Actually, you have to have an account in reasonable standing, so you have to be okay with your money. You have to realize the supply and demand effect. You probably have to realize that uh, you don't just open a place and then customers show up. You have to maintain it. There's health and safety codes, all of those things. But if you were just faced with um, the those requirements bundled up in one and given to you as a manual, so to speak, and say, if you want to make it in the world, these are the kinds of demands you have to meet. There's no context to it. So engagement means uh, doing doing things that you know map on to you know how other people perceive things and how other people feel and including yourself and how you feel about things and it also means that engagement also means that you're there's a reason you're doing stuff back to purpose i guess when i um her story is like four sentences long <clears throat> um I started working as a pastry cook and two months after I started there, the restaurant got a Michelin star. Now I'm working at my second Michelin starred restaurant. So I have to, you know, I'm just imagining what that meant. She got there. She was good at what, hey, this girl, this 21 year old can do what, you know, it's New York. They're charging a lot for those pastries at these Michelin restaurants. I'm sure she's like a hard worker. I'm sure she came in every day and said, oh, what am I going to do today? And I'm sure, I mean, they have some people around who, you know, train. she never trained as a pastry chef. There are people that go to France and everything like that. 
And I'm sure they said, you know, when you apply the cream here, you should do X and Y. And I'll bet she just said, oh, I always wanted to know how to do that. Thanks a lot for showing that to me because she wanted to have that information in to be good at what she's doing. Um, I'm sure, I just imagine that, I'll, you know, she's going to another restaurant. I'm sure everybody says, oh, very hardworking, enthusiastic, has a lot of skills, but anxious and quick to learn. <laughs> so there was another thing you described that you were leaning on when you talked about preschool. It seemed to be really an important ingredient. I, I'm, I'm gonna review our life process program, best practices manual for happiness. One purpose, two strengths and skills, three engagement. And the thing you emphasize experience and adventure you kind of described it when you're in preschool, you don't, there's not a giant agenda. You know what I mean? The day isn't filled with um, curriculum niches. And that a spirit of like open exploration tends to disappear by the time you enter the school system. Did I get your sense of that right, Zach? Yes. How, how, how do you see that happening? And how, do you, I mean, you only, you only have one job already. Is there any way you see of m melding that, those, that sense of adventure and exploration in the larger school program? Well, I've always been a sucker for literature and story arcs, character arcs. And um, I remember in, English classes in high school that I was always able to analyze the real life journey of a of a protagonist in a story and teachers are always very impressed at how real life I was with it you know people go through these developmental stages and so this character was doing this I in preschool kids seem to feel like a character in that story the character in the story doesn't think oh, I'm going through developmental changes and I'm learning all of these things along the way Friends become enemies, enemies become friends. No one's thinking that, you're just doing stuff because it's a, an adventure. And along the way, you absorb the things that you learn. And if you're doing it right, you not only absorb all those things, but you map it onto your future experiences. That's what kids are doing in preschool. Like my daughter, her name is Hadley, comes home and I love that I can say, what did you learn today? And she'll say, nothing, because I know that she learned a lot that day, but that'll come up in conversations that we have about the day sort of more naturally. That's lost when you get to grade school, at least in public schools, so often because we're telling kids that we're teaching you this right now. So sit still and be quiet because I need to hear some knowledge I need to impart on you. And so if you ask a kindergarten student, what did you learn today? They might be able to recite to you the things that you they did in class. They have a clear understanding of what you're what you're asking. But that seems what's lost in the imposition of what I would call an imposition of learning or to like on the nose. This is what you're learning is the adventurous spirit of the learning, which is actually how things become absorbed in a meaningful way. And I want to point out, we've mentioned several of your jobs father, school system, anxiety reducer. 
and you're, as I've said, a life process program coach. So when people come to you, you know, they're all over 20 and some of them are going to be 30 and 40 and 50 and whatever. And so you have no command over them. And we call that when you work with them, you're tapping into their motivation and their values. You can't tell them to do anything, but it's an online coaching service. Mm-hmm. What's going to make them do what you tell them to? You have to tap into those wellsprings and allow them to go out and look at life as a positive experience, even an adventure. Do, do you see that happening with clients uh, in your experience? Yes. Although some are frustrated, uh, at least initially, because they're accustomed to the kind of therapy that says, you know, here's what you should do. Here's the top three things you should go do right now and see me in a week and tell me how that went. Um, but by and large, people are able to tap into their own interests and motivators and, and carry that out into their lives and see what they can do. And there's a reason that they're doing it. And they have to, uh, you have the least amount of control over, I think is the opposite of rehab. They're not locked down anywhere. It's not even really therapy because they have to keep signing up for their sessions. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, what have you done for me lately? How am I doing right now? Is this really the best thing I can do right this second? And then they can always come back later if they say, huh, I was doing things pretty well. You know, I could use a re-up on all of that. Yeah. I, I want to talk about my hero, that unnamed. Oh, they actually named her. Um, um, she was in college. And you know, they shut it down for the pandemic. And so she wandered into New York City and um, she never thought she could be, she liked to bake. She never thought she could be that, but she started doing that somewhere. And so, so, and somehow getting, translating what you know and want to do into your ongoing life was the essence for her of education and for happiness. So the last element, I think, in our manual, it's the Life Process Program Best Practices Manual for Happiness. Um, You know, I should say why we're doing this is uh, I'm signed up for some kind of a I don't know, Zoom conference where the World Health Organization is going to do its best practices. And uh, its best practices are for dealing with uh, mental disorders caused by, exacerbated by the COVID-19 crisis. Mm -hmm. So I've signed up for it. And, you know, I've got mixed feelings. I wonder what they're going to talk about. They're going to tell people... Who knows what they're going to tell people to do, but we're already engaged in a life process program that people volunteer for. We have no coercion over anybody. They are, they're dealing, generally they identify themselves as dealing with some addiction-like problem. Could be drugs or alcohol or pornography or shopping or eating. 
Um, and our operation is geared to getting them into living a productive, satisfying life, which is how we see tackling the problems they come with, emotional disorders, along with addiction type problems. And I don't know, um, I, I don't know that the World Health Organization is capable of making that leap. And you're kind of yourself, you described your meeting with your coworkers of trying to make the educational system work and look like that. Like um, an overall community? Yeah, well, you're trying, you want to change the educational system from being an imposition on the individual spirit mm -hmm. to a channel and an expression of it. Yeah. And you're saying, and one of the things you said was, well, we have a ton of state mandate. We're not, uh, we're not coming here as like whatever group it is who wants to destroy the Department of Education. Um, it's bringing those two things together. Um, and I, I, there's no easy answer. And maybe you're struggling yourself with thinking how to do that. I am. I think there are some answers that are right in front of us. But the problem, of course, is um, I don't know if we want to hit on the community aspect of our best practices yet. That's well, why let's I go ahead with that, because the fifth I have, there are five parts to our best practices. And the fifth is community. You're a part of a community. That community has to continue to exist. People are not going to be happy outside of the community. Even that woman back in the pastry chef, I'm sure she loves working with the other people at her job. Um, she might have described that in her write-up. So yeah, why don't we turn to community now? It's the last of the best practices. I hope that no one gets upset for me saying this, but I think that they would be okay with me saying this about them. I certainly would say it to them. There's a man I, I work with. It loses your job, Zach. No, nah, to... it won't lose me my job. Um, it's, it's ironic that you'll see. There's a man that I work with who, um, and I've certainly been in this position. He has ideas, like I have ideas, about how things should look. You said really well, instead of an imposition on a person's spirit, it's a building up of one or a, a runway for somebody to take off into the larger community. And he has big ideas and great. The problem with that is that everyone has their slice of the universe and they're part of this overall culture. And a lot of them have also thought about this. For some people it's like, well, I had that dream 10 years ago, but I'm doomed. For some people it's, I like that idea, but I'm a little bit more slow moving than you are. Um, so you no one, the you being you, Zach Rhodes. <clears throat> hmm? When you say I'm oh. you being the you, they mean you, Zach Rhodes. Whoever it is with the big idea, with the big new radical idea. And so I think the problem, his problem is he thinks, well, if it's a good idea, people will recognize it. This is a colleague of mine I'm talking about. Um, if it's a good idea, people will recognize it as such they'll be warm to it and say and embrace it and say, yeah, great idea. Let's, let's go. He can rah, rah them into, but it doesn't work like that. People have their dispositions in the world. People have their beliefs, people. And so 
even somebody with, if we all believe it's a right idea, we can't just go imposing right ideas, not because we shouldn't, but because it doesn't work that way. And I think that the actually my best skill I'm coming to realize is um, negotiation among people who are trying to do the right thing or negotiation, people negotiating with their own selves about how to do the right thing for themselves. Uh, the community aspect of this is buy-in and and how do, how does each person work instead of in this larger pursuit of doing what's right and nurturing a person's spirit into growth and purpose and all the rest of it. So community for me in a school, how you get these things to communicate with each other. Well, as I said, demands overreach or overhead of state or district concepts or benchmarks we have to meet where they're probably not going to go anywhere. Maybe there's a, a brave radical attorney somewhere that'll help us out of that. But until then, those things are where they are, but we need to move around it. And we need to go on with the idea that we're trying to get people to have adventures, play, find their purpose, be motivated. And with that, they'll be able to adhere to challenges in the world. So you, it's sort of like motivational interviewing at a larger scale. You have to, for people to move in a good direction, you have to tie into their values and preferences. And when you're working in a larger organization and you wanna move things in one direction or another, you have to tie your ideas into their motivational structure and their value structure. Right, right. So that means, um, that can mean sacrificing some big idea or specific idea that you have, but never sacrificing the, the principles of the thing. And I think that more often than not, people share values more than they think. And people share fundamental principles more than they think, if only they can figure out how to get beyond the roadblocks together. That's community for me. Well, you know, uh, we're calling to an end now our five point life process program, best practices for happiness. I want to remind everybody why we're doing that because there's a universal sense that people are not happy, they're anxious and depressed and have a ton of other kinds of emotional problems going and they're expanding. And the World Health Organization, they run the world. They have a director of uh, emotional disorders and substance use. And we feel in our own little way that we have a vision of how this should all take place. And it's not all cockamamie stuff that we made up one day. It's part of our ongoing life process program and our uh, esteemed uh, coach, Zach Rhodes, applies exactly these kinds of thinking and methods in an ongoing, you know, major, it's an educational system in, in a moderate sized community. We'll have to put up our best practices manual online as a blog or some sort of document that people can read. Absolutely, Zach. Thanks for going along and helping, you know, help your community and the larger LPP community. Thank you, Stanton. I'm always happy to discuss all the things we discuss every Sunday.
Au revoir. Take care.